We're using the book of Joshua as our example, and the title of this session is, How Can We See Christ from the Book of Joshua? We'll spend most of our time in this session talking about how we see Christ in the Bible and a narrative, and then we'll use Joshua as our example. I'll read Joshua chapter 1. We want to get familiar with the themes, the language, and the contours of the book, which are mostly reflected and embedded within this first chapter. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving them, to the people of Israel, every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. For from the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites and the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and very courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And Joshua commanded the officers of the people, Pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, Prepare your provisions, for within three days you are to pass over this Jordan, to go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. And to the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan. But all the men of valor among you, you shall pass over armed before your brothers and shall help them until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you. And they also take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and shall possess it. The land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. And they answered Joshua, All that you have commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words, whatever you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. Well, there's a, there's a picture on the first, in the first floor hallway of my wife's parents' home. And when we stay there, I walk out of the bedroom in the morning and I see this picture. I've seen it for the 11 years we've been married and I saw it for the several years we were dating before that when I would visit her parents. It's a picture of a wagon wheel and a disheveled mailbox and a pile of brush. I don't like the picture, 
The whole family says you can see Jesus in the picture. It's just this old thing they've got hanging on the wall. Apparently, if you stare at it long enough and in just the right way, you can see Jesus. And I'm telling you, for 11 years I have tried, and now I just walk by the thing. Each visit, I do give it a shot. I've been told he's there. I don't know how to see him. When it comes to Jesus in the Old Testament, are we just seeing things? Are we just seeing things? The title of this session assumes at least two things are true. First, that Christ can be seen from the book of Joshua. And second, that we, you and I here today, can actually see Christ from the book of Joshua. If you read a Dr. Seuss book to your children and said, children, on every page we will see the Lord Jesus, hopefully they would be confused. Perhaps you've heard the Bible is about Jesus and then you're reading some of the Old Testament and you're thinking, what on earth? Sort of like me staring at that picture. You've been told he's there, but you cannot see him. So is he there? Should we even be doing this? Or to ask the same question a different way, is this really biblical? Does God want us to see Jesus in the Old Testament? Does Jesus want us to see him in the Old Testament? Or is this just some neat way of getting more out of the more obscure, getting something out of the more obscure parts of the Bible to feel good about an otherwise confusing book? We should want to know. Well, the answer is absolutely yes, we should be looking for Jesus. In fact, we're fools if we don't. That's what Jesus said to his disciples who didn't understand the meaning of his death in Luke 24 when he said, oh foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, the Old Testament, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. If that's a new verse to you in Luke 24 and you had to highlight one verse in the Bible, I'd suggest a few. This would be one to highlight. Luke 24. So we're fools if we don't see Jesus in the Old Testament. We're also lazy. I couldn't think of a better word, but consider how hard the Old Testament writers work to understand Christ and how much help we've been given. Peter writes to Christians in 1 Peter 1, concerning this salvation that we've received, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. We don't understand Old Testament or Jesus either if we're not looking for Jesus in the Old Testament. Matthew 5, 17, and these verses are in a little bit of a different order than you've got printed. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Part of the way Jesus explained what he came to do was with reference to the Old Testament. We're also behind the times Here's how the author of the New, the New Testament book of Hebrews began what is really a sermon in his book of Hebrews. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. 
After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And the rest of the book of Hebrews is an unpacking of that verse in a way. Christ's priestly and kingly and prophetic offices. And you can't get them without the Old Testament. In other words, uh, and, and finally, and most sadly, we also miss the glory of God. We also miss the glory of God. 2 Corinthians 1.20, For all the promises of God find their yes in him, Jesus. That is why through him that we utter our amen to the God for his glory. So if you don't see how all the promises of God are yes in Jesus, then your amen to God for his glory will be diminished. God will not be properly worshipped, even if he is worshipped in your life. And so all of our life, thankfully, we've got a thick Old Testament to get to know more of. We are not done exploring it, and there's more glory for God to receive in our hearts as we respond to his word. I've quoted some verses here to give a grounds for this question, should we even seek Jesus? But really, every idea in line in the New Testament depends on the Old Testament. So it's not just the New Testament's teaching, but it's the New Testament's whole, whole, the whole thing uh, give, gives a gives a ground for it. So yes, it's biblical. But how do we do it? That's the question. How do we do this? So now the next header, clearing the fog of the Old Testament. Clearing the fog of the Old Testament. Old Testament can be a foggy book. Sometimes it's hard to see your hand in front of your face or the words that you just read, let alone Christ. We're removed by thousands of years and culture and we don't know the names of these places or where they're at and the characters are new to us. Especially if you didn't grow up in the church learning the Bible, there's a lot to get to know. In fact, for me, getting to know Joshua is a new thing. I've read through the book, could probably talk for a minute and a half on it a couple weeks ago. Um, so your pastors are getting to know their Bibles as well. Sometimes we'll even say, hey, what do you know about fill in the blank book of the Bible? So you're not alone here. I'm with you. Let's talk about how, the question how to see Christ in the Old Testament. We'll talk about three approaches to seeing Christ and we'll pick one. I'll share with you three contexts or horizons for reading the Old Testament and seeing Christ. And then I'll give you three questions that we should ask of Old Testament narrative in order to see Christ. Three common approaches to seeing Christ in the Old Testament. First, seeing Christ here and there. This is the person who says, there are 486 direct prophecies of Christ in the Old Testament that Jesus fulfills. And where there isn't a direct prophecy, it's not about Christ. It's a story. It's a moral lesson. Of course, the Old Testament's full of those. But they'll see Christ in very specific and narrow places. See him here and there. I had a teacher of scripture once correct biblical interpreters for seeing Christ in places in the Old Testament. Don't download the oak tree into the acorn, he would say. It's kind of a maybe a best reading of what he'd say is, an, is a caution against being too quick to move to Christ. But I think in that context, in knowing him, it was actually a, a uh, caution against seeing Christ in many places where I think you should. He's here and there, but not everywhere. There's a second way that suggests we should be seeing Christ on every page. Now, this isn't terrible language. You may have heard it. We may have used it around here, but it can be a little confusing. It's not nuanced enough. You're reading a page or a chapter in the Old Testament, and you've been told Jesus is on every page. But where is he on this page? Where is he in this sentence? On the extreme end of this way of thinking, some say he's on every page, and he's the only thing on every page. One popular author I came across uh, recently was telling the story about when she was 
reading a Bible story in the Old Testament to her children, and she asked the question, what can we learn from David? And then she said, I was horrified at the thought that that question would come out of my mind, that I had missed Christ and tried to draw a moral lesson from the life of David. Well, we can draw all kinds of moral lessons from the Old Testament. Christ is there, and the Old Testament is also instructing us in the nature of God and, and what is right and wrong. So some run into that ditch. The approach is as old as anything. Uh, one early church school of biblical interpretation saw everything as allegorical. It tried to unite the Bible's message by seeing Christ under different words and symbols. Things you couldn't repeat on your own if you read the Bible on your own. A whole bunch of things on eBay you can buy that look like Jesus. I found um, Jesus in a breakfast taco, Jesus in a waffle, Jesus in an ice cream swirl, of course, tortillas and chips. He's very popular in those. Sometimes we can do that with the Bible, can't we? Is that Jesus? But there's a third and, I think, truer way of talking about Jesus and his relationship to the Old Testament. It's seeing Christ from every page in the Old Testament. Seeing Christ from every page. It might sound like what I just said, but it's not. Seeing Christ from every page is different than seeing Christ on every page. The difference is subtle, but it can help us guard against doing things that are wrong with the text. Every page has a relationship to Jesus Christ, and we want to see Christ better from the vantage point of every moment in the Bible. In the first approach, we see Christ here and there. In the second approach, Christ is everywhere. And this approach sees Christ where he is, risen, exalted, seated, having finished his work, gathering his people. Seeing Christ from every page means seeing Christ where he is and discerning how our passage relates to him and explains who he is, and explains what he came to do, how it anticipates his coming. So instead of thinking of every page in the Bible like a hat out of which you pull a rabbit called Jesus, we can think of every page in the Bible like a page in a book. Who'd have thought? Right? And you open up any page in a novel... And everything that's happening on that page has something to do with the main point of the book and the main character of the book and the main storyline of the book, right? But you don't need to do tricks to explain how that page relates. What you need to do is know the story. And then it's obvious to you. So it is with the Bible. So those are three common approaches to relating Christ to a given passage. We're going with number three. But how? How can we see Christ from a given Old Testament passage? How can you see Christ from whatever passage you're reading in the Bible, in the Old Testament, right now? The answer, I think, will be familiar to you, but I'm hoping to unpack it to you for you in a fresh way. The answer is context. Context. Three horizons for seeing Christ from anywhere in Scripture. Talked about three approaches. Now, there are three horizons for seeing Christ from anywhere in Scripture or three contexts. First, you have the immediate horizon. When you're reading a passage in the Old Testament, you should look down at the page in front of you. This is the immediate context of a given passage. And the key to understanding the immediate context or horizon is a good, robust application of the doctrine of inspiration. These are God's words and every word counts. He put them all there. He means to reveal, not to conceal and to hide. 
He also revealed his words through human authors in particular contexts with particular personalities, with particular writing styles, even writing ability. Peter is different than Paul in the New Testament. Genres, words, understanding the author, his purpose, and the structure of what he wrote, all that's part of the immediate context. This is usually what people mean when they say read a passage in context, and this is often what people skip when they're trying to get to Jesus. Sometimes we'll bracket the immediate context and make a leap. So that's the immediate horizon or context, and secondly, there's the unfolding context. If the immediate horizon is, the, is us looking down at the page in front of us, then the unfolding horizon or context is us looking around to see where we're at in the story. Since the Bible has been given to us, not in a moment, but in time and progressively over time, then we need to know what happens before and after our text to understand what's happening in our text. Every story has a beginning. The Bible story begins, of course, in the Garden of Eden. God with his image bearers at rest, having deployed them to fill the earth and to multiply and to have dominion over it. Every story has a problem. The problem is condemnation brought about by human rebellion from God, and the solution is indicated in a single fantastic verse, Genesis 3.15, even before Adam and Eve leave the garden. With this word to Satan, God planted the seed that would grow into the Bible's salvation story when he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so the rest of the story of the Bible is kicked off. It's a story of conflict and it has a good ending that is promised almost here at the beginning. But it's not just enough to know how the story begins, what the problem is, and that it ends well. If you've ever felt lost in the Bible, you'll agree. You might know that California is to the left, west. You might know that New York is to the east, right? And yet be totally lost if dropped in the middle of nowhere in the United States on a road or off. Even without a compass, being totally lost lost. So what holds the two sides of the Bible together? Covenant holds the two sides of the Bible together. If the Bible is a book of promises, covenants are his main promises. They're like promise relationships. There are five of them, and these five promises are the key to understanding where you're at against the unfolding horizon, where you're at in the story of the Bible. They're like the train tracks that run across the terrain of the Bible, through mountains, across deserts, over plains, until the track runs out when the land runs out on the other side. In his covenant with Noah, God's really just restating his commitment to his creation and to the human project. He tells Noah, as he did to Adam, be fruitful and multiply, have dominion over the earth. In his covenant with Abraham, God promises land, Sort of a return to Eden in a way. Descendants, that he would multiply children. And blessing, that the world would be blessed through him. Gave him the symbol of circumcision to set him apart. In his covenant with Moses, God gave his people the law and promised blessing for obedience and cursing for disobedience. The Exodus story is a part of this. The Passover celebration, remembering the sacrifice of the lamb that saved them from death. 
the priesthood and the sacrifices and the temple are all bound up with God's covenant to Moses in which God is focusing how his promise from Genesis 3.15 will be unfolded. In his covenant with David, God promises that one of David's offspring, which is one of Abraham's offspring too, will bring all of God's plan to fruition, sit on an eternal throne in an eternal kingdom. It all hangs on David and his son. God's plan of salvation, his promised story is focusing in one man to come. And then through the prophets, when the hope appeared lost and David's sons are tripping and falling and failing and there seems to be no hope, God promises a new covenant. A covenant would bring full forgiveness of sins and a new heart and the spirit of God and would fulfill all of the expectations of the previous covenants and eclipse and replace them. God, we find out, will be the one who comes as David's son, the divine son of David, who will one day sit on his throne but first suffer. If you put all the promises together, you can see that a son of David will save his people and the Lord will come to save his people. Covenant is the key to the unfolding horizon, knowing where you're at in the story. Know these five covenants. In fact, if you don't know where you're at in the covenant story of the Bible, you've run yourself off the tracks possibly and you're possible to miss Christ. That's what Paul is correcting in his letter to the Galatian church when he's arguing for justification by faith apart from human work. By rehearsing God's main promises, his covenant promises, and which order they came in. He writes in Galatians 3, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but to one, and to your offspring, who's Christ. This is what I mean. The law, the Mosaic law, which came 430 years afterward, you see the unfolding horizon, the timeline, does not annul the covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. And now he explains what's the point of the Mosaic law. He's explaining the relationship of them. Why then the law? It was added because of transgression until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. So the Mosaic covenant is a way of God carrying his promise from one part of the Bible to the next as a handoff is made. Knowing God's main promises and how they relate across the Bible is the key to the unfolding horizon. Get it wrong and you're just lost. You're just lost. The story is structured in such a way as to make our great need plain with every phase of the Bible. Our sin is depicted and evidenced in different ways. And also God's great grace is made plain in more color, in more vivid description. So always ask yourself, where am I at in the story? That's the takeaway. So where am I at in the story? And then remember God's main promises across the story to protect you from much bad interpretation. There's the immediate horizon or context, the unfolding, and then there's the whole Bible horizon. This is now, up, this is now us up in the sky looking down on the whole Bible at once. Or to quote my wife chastising me for not being able to see Jesus in the wagon wheel image, you have to hold it far away or you can't see it. 
So there's something to say for that. You have to look at any text within the context of the whole Bible. The whole Bible horizon. From new crea- creation to new creation. Eden to the new creation. And if the key to understanding the unfolding horizon is the Bible's promise structure, covenant. It's how the Bible comes together like train tracks. The key to understanding the whole Bible horizon, we'll call them promise patterns. You may have heard the word language of typology or types. We'll just call them patterns. This is like the cargo that runs along the tracks of the Bible. You ever read one part of the Bible and then another part of the Bible and another part of the Bible and I'll be with you, I'll never leave you or forsake you. You recognize that from chapter 1? Jesus says things like that. He sends his spirit who is with us. That's the theme of presence. Jesus is the second Adam. He's greater than Moses. He's the great high priest. These are themes, tabernacle, temple, Holy Spirit, no temple in the new creation at the end of the Bible. These are themes. It's like the cargo that runs along the tracks of the Bible from one side to the other. People are patterns. He's the son of Abraham, the greater Moses, David's greater son. Places can be patterns. Eden is a place of God's presence where there's rest, Outside of Eden, God's promises point toward a land flowing with milk and honey and then to a new creation. Sometimes institutions are patterns. Jesus is a final sacrifice, a great high priest. Sometimes events, he brings a new creation, a new exodus. Not from slavery in Egypt, but from slavery to sin. The prophets are constantly using the exodus as the story to explain what God's going to do one day. It's a pattern, you see. So how do you know you're looking at one of these? You can see these all over the place, like every word's a pattern. Is that Jesus? Is that connected to this? I'll give you a couple criteria, promised patterns. They're historically rooted. They're not just about words and concepts and symbols, but realities and real life. The Bible is a story that took place in the real world. They're historical. They're scripturally grounded. This might sound obvious, but another Christian from another time and another place should be able to see it too. If you're really not sure, eh, just let it go. There are many very transparently clear patterns in the Bible. They're divinely designed. We don't imagine them. God put these patterns here. They're predictive. They're not just retrospective. You don't just see that Jesus is a great high priest and that that was had something to do with the priesthood in the Old Testament. The priesthood in the Old Testament was built in such a way as to make you want a great high priest. The repetition of the sacrifices, the priest was offering them for himself, you see? It's supposed to make you want a great priest who can solve the problem of sin. They're predictive in that way. And they point to Christ. They're fulfilled in him. They don't have, uh, sometimes folks will jump from a pattern here and just jump to something else in the New Testament. Circumcision, baptism. Circumcision is fulfilled in Christ who is perfectly set apart. And his heart is circumcised and he circumcises our hearts. They're fulfilled in Christ and they give spiritual meaning to the church. They always run through Christ first. Well, having established the way we're going to approach this, seeing Christ from every page and having talked about three horizons, now here are three questions, three questions to ask Old Testament narrative mostly just going to state these, then we'll turn to Joshua. First, how does this story anticipate the kind of salvation Christ will bring? As you're reading, 
It's a reading. You can ask that. What is God going to save us from? And what does he save us to? How does this passage and this story clarify the nature of the human problem of sin and death and condemnation? How does this passage clarify the kind of salvation that Christ will bring? Second question, how does this story anticipate the kind of people that Christ will save? The kind of people that Christ will save. What does it teach us about who God brings into his saving promises? The makeup of his people. Who his plan will ultimately include. And the third question. How does this story anticipate the kind of savior that Christ will be? How does it anticipate the kind of savior that Christ will be? What does it teach us about who the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one will come to be and do? These are the kinds of things the Old Testament writers longed to understand and into which angels longed to look. Remember 1 Peter 1, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace, the kind of salvation that was to be yours, the kind of people Those prophets searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and subsequent glories. And that's the kind of Savior. They were following hints as the Bible was unfolding. It became more and more clear so that when Jesus arrives, many don't see him because of the hardness of their heart. But when Luke starts out his gospel, One point he's making is that um, though mainstream Judaism didn't recognize Jesus, he was nonetheless recognizable. Simeon, Anna, they were waiting and they recognized him. These are the kinds of things the Old Testament writers understood, desired to understand, and they're the kinds of things that we understand. So what does this mean? It means the Bible's a simple book. It means the Bible's a simple book. Mark Devers preached through the Bible one sermon per Sunday for a number of years, years back, and released two volumes, one called Promises Made and one called Promises Kept. Which one do you suppose is the Old Testament volume? Promises Made and the New Testament volume, Promises Kept. There's a cross in the middle of the Bible where Jesus is fulfilling God's promises. So even if you have ways to go in your understanding of how to see Christ, be encouraged that the point is clear. Even a child can grasp this. Plenty became Christians in the first century who didn't know their Old Testaments yet. And know that you can grasp it uh, without knowing the Old Testament and that knowing the Old Testament is no promise that you'll get it any better. The Hebrews were warned against falling away lest they fall into their Old Testament ways and miss Christ. The Bible is simple, but it's not boring and it's not shallow. There are depths here to explore for eternity. It should overwhelm us with joy in what we see there, and it should also overwhelm us with the depths that we haven't searched. Think of it like going to Disneyland. When you find out there's ten times more into Disneyland that you haven't explored, 
Don't be like, oh, shoot. I haven't been to the rest of it. It's going to take me forever. Just think, wow, I've got a lot of exploring to do. So be encouraged in your Bible knowledge. So let's talk about Joshua. How can we see Christ from the story of Joshua? How can we see Christ from the story of Joshua? In terms of the immediate horizon, the first verse gives us our historical situation. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the baton has been handed off. The second verse tells us basically what happens in the book. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. And the book of Joshua is structured along the lines of the relationship of this people to the land. Israel prepares to go to the land, go to the land in the first two chapters. In 3 through 5, Israel is crossing into the land. In 6 through 12, Israel takes the land. For seven chapters then, Israel is dividing the land. I mean, you're reading this going, holy cow, there, there's like seven chapters of names of places and people and kings. Think of it like title deeds. God's doing good on his promise for seven chapters. Real places, real people, real victories. Then the last several chapters, Israel is settling into the land. That's the immediate context. In terms of the unfolding context, we find Israel under the Mosaic Covenant. God spoke to Moses and gave him the law. We call the Mosaic Law. Blessings and cursings come with it. The Passover, the Ark of the Covenant, the priesthood, circumcision. God's promise to Israel was fixed, but it would come about in coordination with her obedience, and especially the obedience of her leader. The emphasis in this book is on Joshua as the leader of the people, and much is at stake in Joshua's obedience. But the background for the book, uh, the God's covenant with Moses is his covenant with Abraham. We're moving into the land after all, promised to the fathers. And the Abrahamic covenant is in the context of God's commitment to his creation. He is through his promises and in this book, turning back and showing us how he will turn back what was lost in the fall. So that's where we're at in the unfolding story. Now the whole Bible horizon, looking down from the sky. How on earth is Israel's, uh, the, uh, on earth is Israel's conquest and a plot of land in Palestine relate to Jesus on a cross and our salvation? How do seven chapters of these title deeds relate to Genesis 3.15 and God's crushing, uh, Eve's son's crushing of the head of the serpent? Here is the payoff for all of our work so far. Here's the payoff. Three ways. First, the story of Joshua reveals the God who keeps his promise of land and rest. The God who keeps his promise of land and rest. I should say now that I'm indebted to uh, a Stephen Wellam and David Helm. You may be familiar with either for many of their insights into Joshua being so new to the book. I've had their help in seeing these things, though you could see them as well. Joshua 1.13 Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. The Lord is providing. He is providing. We read statements like that all across the book of Joshua. 
And it's more than just statements. It's actually how God goes about it. How would Israel explain to her children how they got over the Jordan? God parted it. How would they explain how they took Jericho? Well, we walked around it seven times and then blew trumpets and the walls came down. The Lord took the city. And how did they win these battles? The Lord told Joshua before they headed into Jericho. When the angel of the Lord, of the armies of the Lord, met with Joshua. When Joshua was at Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for your adversaries? And he said, No, but I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face. And this commander, this angel, tells Joshua to take off his sandals for he's on holy ground. He commands worship. He's saying, he will fight for Israel, trust in me. And this should be somewhat familiar. Exodus 23, 20, behold, the Lord says, I send an angel before you to guard you on your way. And we see references to God taking care of his people, leading his people and fighting for his people by means of an angel of the Lord. And we would say this is a pre-incarnate vision of Jesus Christ himself, the son of God. The point, God is providing for his people. God does it. Grace is the point. See the gospel? And what's he providing? He provides rest and he provides land. Rest in this context, just call it heaven. It's as good as it gets. It's the other side of the Jordan. It's the land of promise, the land flowing the milk with milk and honey. It's tied back to creation when God on the seventh day rests. He enters into the enjoyment of his creation. Rest represents our relationship with God at its best, free from sin. The Sabbath was established as a pattern of rest so they might taste God every seven days in a special way. You might be familiar with Psalm 95. It opens with the command to sing to the Lord. It gives reasons for he's a great God. He's our shepherd. We're the sheep of his pasture. Then there's a warning. This is David writing. Today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as when your father's put me to the test. He's talking about the generation that died right before Joshua started. Generation lived and died before the book of Joshua opens. And David says, quoting God, therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. He says, today do not harden your heart. He's offering rest. In the New Testament, the author of the book of Hebrews is preaching the theme of rest. Here's what he says. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. For we who have believed enter that rest. We who have believed. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from his works. And again, In this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter it because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day. Today, God saying through David in Psalm 95, so long afterward, Joshua's conquest. In the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest... 
God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his work as God does from his. Now, nothing in the book of Hebrews is to read once and grasp in full. So I sympathize with you if you are saying, what was that all about? Here's what it's all about. The rest that Israel was promised and that Israel sought, they did not get. But we have now in Christ. The rest that God was promising Israel through Moses and Joshua was but a shadow of the rest that comes to us in Christ. Of the kind of relationship and peace with God that we would enjoy. And the story of Israel moving from slavery to salvation and rest in the land, we have a picture of what God has done for us moving from slavery to sin and death into a relationship with God. He's talking about what salvation is. It's rest, the opposite of restlessness, pure contentment in God. What about the land? Didn't God promise Abraham and his children a plot of land? What do you do about that? Yes, but this was just the first installment in a plan to redeem the whole creation. That's why Paul could say this in Romans 4.13, which I love. The promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. That Abraham would be the heir of the whole world. Weren't we just talking about land, a plot of land? No, the whole world. Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And when he went out, not knowing where he was going, by faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs to the same promise. See the emphasis on the main promises here. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. He was seeking a better country that is a heavenly one. Canaan in this land is a shadow of the new creation, heaven. If your Bible starts in Eden, where we're kicked out of Eden and God's place of his presence is lost, the promise of the land is just one step along the way to the restoration of the entire creation of which Jesus brings about. Our real problem is that we're outside of Eden, that we're restless. And so Jesus says, come to me, all who, are labor and heavy, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The story of Joshua reveals the God who keeps his promise of land and rest. What else can we pick up from the story of Joshua? The story of Joshua reveals God's purpose to save a people from among the nations. This is a special feature of this story. I hope you don't miss it. Chapter 2, Joshua sends in some spies. Who do they meet first? A prostitute. We should not be surprised that there is a market for sex on the other side of the Jordan. These are the Gentiles, those who don't know God after all. But this woman believes. She says, we're all afraid here, for we've heard what your God has done. And not only does she believe, because everyone else apparently believes, they're afraid, the whole town is, but she trusts in this God and asks for his protection through them, and they offer it. When we come back, make sure a cord is hanging from your window and you'll be safe. And God does good on it, and so does Joshua. It says to be exactly the opposite thing that these spies could have expected to happen. She protects them, and they promise to protect her. 
What have we just learned? Who are the true children of Abraham? Those who believe are the true children of Abraham. Galatians 3, it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. Abraham's Abraham's scarlet cord, the meaning isn't so much in the color, I don't think. There may be something to that as it is in the fact of a symbol of her faith. That cord is hanging down from her window, signifying that she trusts in the God of Israel. And so we read in the New Testament, By faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient, because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Rahab the prostitute was justified, the Bible says, and her name is in the genealogy of Jesus Christ himself. Rahab's the first person Israel meets, and she believes. They're going in to take the land, and the first person they meet is a prostitute, and she ends up an Israelite. It's nuts. This is also seen in the dividing up of the land. Seven chapters, I said, of the division of the land. The first person to get land is Caleb. The last person to get land is Joshua. It's bookended with these two men. These two men who were the spies who were sent in to search out the land initially under Moses, who were faithful and who are now in the land many years later. Eighty years old, Caleb would be. Caleb, the text says, is a Kenizzite. So what? He's a Kenizzite? Well, the Kenizzites are mentioned in Genesis 15 when God's talking to Abraham about giving him the land that belongs to, it gives a list, including the Kenizzites. At some point, Caleb's people trusted the God of Israel. Do you see how it isn't just a Christian imposition on the Old Testament for us to believe that God's salvation provided through Israel is really for the nations? It's all over the place. And can you see that this isn't an artificial jump to Jesus? You have to see the story. It can take time to see these things. Preachers and teachers and good commentaries can help, and a lot of soaking in the text. I promise you I never would have saw that Kenizzite thing without help. (laughs) I don't think I know my Bible that well. All right, so no surprise, Jesus says, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, right? So the story of Joshua reveals the God who keeps his promise of land and rest The God whose purpose to save a people from among the nations. How else can we see Christ in Joshua or from Joshua? Third, the story of Joshua reveals God's plan to save people through an obedient and victorious leader. The book begins, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, When Moses was alive, God spoke to Moses, and Moses spoke to the people, and now Moses is dead. The Lord speaks to Joshua. Joshua speaks to the people. God works through a leader who represents the people. And Joshua was an obedient leader. At the beginning, he was commanded to keep the law and not turn from the left or to the right. And at the end of the book, Joshua says, and now I'm about to go to the way of all the earth. And you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things the Lord our God has promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you, not one of them has failed. 
It's an optimistic reflection on all that God has done. He was obedient, and through his obedience, Joshua was a victorious leader among his people. Through Joshua, we're told that the Lord has given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies. Some of the battle stories across this book are interesting. Joshua's taking cities and hunts down, chases five kings into a cave, takes his men to the cave, yanks the kings out, kills them, hangs them from trees, takes them down, tells his men to stick their feet on their necks, and they pile stones on top of them. He's a winner. <laughs> He's getting the job done, violent, bloody, and complete. This raises other questions. We'll deal with this when we deal with uh, Joshua and uh, the equip class we'll be offering here in October and November. You'll learn more about in the weeks ahead. But it's a violent, bloody, and complete victory. Joshua was a victorious leader, but not obedient and victorious enough. There are gaps in what Joshua and Israel were able to do. In the same breath, the verses I read earlier, we read, The Lord said to him, You are old and advanced in years, and there remains yet very much land to possess. The people of Israel did not drive out the, the Geshurites or the Maccathites or Geshur and others who dwell in the midst of Israel to this day. Not all these victories were complete. Their obedience and his obedience was not full. And Joshua dies at the end of the book like Moses did. Joshua is not the son of Eve that we're looking for from Genesis 3.15. And so there's tension in the story. This leader, Joshua, couldn't provide the rest God promised. He couldn't take them into the true place of God's presence that they were looking forward to. He did not keep the law perfectly or make a people to keep the law perfectly. And because of this, there's a hint of some hard times to come at the very end of the book. Joshua says, But just as all the good things the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled, so the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until he's destroyed you from off the good land that the Lord your God has given you. Yikes! If you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods. The warning there, and we know from the rest of the Old Testament that it doesn't go so well for Israel because of her sin. They're under the Mosaic Covenant. Blessing follows obedience and curse follows disobedience. The Bible's story needs a better Savior, and we need a better Savior, a more obedient and more victorious leader, and Jesus is that Savior to come. As Joshua was obedient, God gives him victory over his enemies, but his obedience was partial, and so his victory was partial. But Jesus' obedience and victory was total. Jesus is the one who can beat back sin and the devil and death. Hear this from 1 Corinthians 15. For as by man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection from the dead. He'll deliver the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every total rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his what? Under his feet until the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So when Joshua put his foot and had his men put their feet on the necks of those wicked kings who hated God, Satan was getting a feel for what was to come. With this world's wicked kings under Joshua's foot, Satan had a taste of what 
he would have to swallow. But Satan's final blow would not come in the same way. For the problem is greater than wickedness out there or the devil who is against us. The problem is also inside us. R.E. Aiken's sin. They didn't conquer Ai in that occasion in this story because there was sin in the camp. And Aiken was piled stones on top of and utterly killed. Jesus is hung on a tree for us and crushed for his people to solve not only the problem of the devil, but the problem of sin in the heart of the human race and in the heart of God's people who even see his wonders. Like the death of the Canaanite kings, Jesus' death too was bloody, it was violent, it was just. But unlike Joshua's victories, God's judgment of sin on the cross was complete. Do you see? The way to get to Jesus from Joshua is to see Joshua for what it is on the page, to understand it in its immediate context and its structure and to pay attention to the words before us. It's to know where it sits in the story and it's never to forget where it sits in light of the whole thing. How does the story of Joshua anticipate the kind of salvation Christ will bring? It reveals the God who keeps his promise of land and rest. How does it anticipate the kind of people God will save? It reveals his purpose to save a people from among the nations. And how does his story anticipate the kind of savior Christ will be? It reveals God's plan to save people through an obedient and victorious leader. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're grateful for two hours now deep we are into this seminar with an hour left. And a lot coming at us. We're grateful for the book of Joshua. Help us not to be fools as we read it. Help us not to miss what's obvious. Help us to work as hard as the prophets would have to understand the things that we understand. So that we might see Christ in all of the scriptures. And know what he might have said as beginning with Moses and all the prophets. He interpreted to his disciples in them the things concerning himself. It's in his name we pray. Amen.